0: During the 16th century, God raised up a man named Martin Luther. Uh, You might have heard of him. He was the man that would spark what we call the Protestant Reformation. Before that, however, long before that, Luther was something of a tortured soul. He was desperate for God's approval, but he was weighed down with chronic guilt and a disturbed fear of God. And so to improve his chances, so he thought of going to heaven, well, what do you do? You become a monk. That'll solve it. And Luther, he was a good monk. He prayed and he fasted almost constantly. Uh, During the German winter, he would sometimes, out of remorse for his sins, he'd go to sleep without blankets. He'd go to confession endlessly for hours every day. And on one occasion, the poor monk who was taking his confession, he got sick of it and he said to Luther, dude... Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Would would you go out and commit a real sin then and, and at least come back and we'll have something to talk about? Now, it's not very good advice, but you can understand how you might end up in a situation like that. These were Luther's own words. I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was me. And yet, for all of that, Throughout his life, Luther experienced no assurance of God's forgiveness and he had no sense of enjoying God's love. At this point of his life, instead, his days were filled with anxiety. Have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Is there some outstanding sin that I'm yet to confess? Because to Luther, at this part of his life, God was a distant unpredictable, spiteful, impossible to please God. And what really troubled Luther was verse 17 in Romans 1, the righteousness of God. Because in Luther's misunderstanding, a misunderstanding that would be reinforced by the corrupted church of his day, righteousness, what does that mean? A right standing with God. Well, in Luther's mind, that was something he needed to achieve, but always lay out of reach. He couldn't do it. Until, led by the Holy Spirit, Luther would find relief in this letter to the Romans. Instead of being a status we must achieve, but always out of reach, this right standing with God, righteousness as it's called here, Luther came to realise it was a gift he was invited to receive. A right standing before God that's ours, achieved by the finished work of Christ Jesus, his perfect obedience in place of our rebellion, And his perfect sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty. It would be this realisation, this rediscovery of what we call the gospel, that a right standing with God is ours through the finished work of Jesus, without exaggeration, this rediscovery would shape Western history for the next 500 years. Now that's a long introduction, Martin Luther lived a long time ago, what's that got to do with us? Well I share this with you because it's one example of many where this letter to the Romans has quite literally changed the world and it continues to do so and so as we explore the first five chapters of this letter we're going to work hard together. Some of our sermons might be a bit longer than normal. I believe in you. I hope I can hold your attention. More than that, I hope that along the way, you'll be able to say with me and with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But what is this thing we call the gospel? Well, by way of introduction, Paul writes this letter to the Romans in about AD 57, thereabouts, which gives us a timestamp of about 25 years or so after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you've got your Bible open, verse 7 tells us Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. And verses 11 and 12 tell us why he's writing to them. He wants to encourage and strengthen them as they encourage and strengthen him in their faith in Jesus. But specifically, Paul wants to equip these Christians for mission in the city of Rome that people in that city would come to saving faith in Jesus. But if you think about it, In order for these Christians in Rome to take the gospel to the city of Rome, they need to know what the gospel is. And that question is what Paul is going to continue to answer week after week. What is the gospel? Well, put simply, a gospel is an announcement. I said this morning that I skipped breakfast and then I was looking forward to lunch. That was true. That's an announcement, but it's not a gospel. What is a gospel? A gospel is a world-changing environment. Think back. You weren't alive, neither was I, but you've learned it in history. It's August 1945. Japan surrenders. That's a gospel. Good news in the context of a victory. That's a gospel. Follow with me from verse 1. And as we go, I'm going to highlight some of the implications for us. What is a gospel? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, I think we're six words into this letter, and already, if we just slow down, this is absolute dynamite. As you read Romans or any other part of the Bible, for that matter, would you just slow down? Because when you do, you'll strike gold. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Why does this matter? Well, remember, who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians in Rome. The emperor is king. Actually, the emperor is the divine king, worshipped. No, the man Jesus of Nazareth is Christ. And someone will say, well, big deal. That's just his name, Jesus Christ. No, this is his designated title. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. What does that make him? Well, that makes him king of kings. The emperor is not king. He's certainly not worthy of your worship. And by the way, I want to say to you that what was true in Rome remains true today for you and me. Like the Romans, we have our cultural masters too, those who want to presume to dictate what we are allowed to think and those who want to govern what we're allowed to say. And our answer must be a polite but firm no, Jesus is the Christ. We answer to him. We won't stay silent. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. What does that mean? It means he's a messenger. And that's a reference to that moment when Jesus confronts Paul. We saw it in Acts chapter 9, the risen Jesus confronts. He was Saul back then. And Saul is converted, he becomes a follower of Jesus, he changes his name, Saul becomes Paul, and Jesus says, you, Paul, you're going to be my messenger to the nations. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Did you see that, verse 1? Whatever it is, this thing we call the gospel, it comes from God. Not our idea. The gospel is not self-help. On the contrary, God reaches out to helpless sinners. It's his gospel. It's his declaration. And verse 2, this gospel is very old. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And again, let's make this practical. Do you see how exclusive this gospel is? Because there are many competing Gospels out there, many competing stories about humans and how we flourish and how we are happy and fulfilled. But look at verse 2. This is the Gospel which he, God, promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, what we'd call the Old Testament. This is exclusive. And one of the implications of all of this and for our reassurance, did you know this gospel, it's not plan B? It's not like God looked down one day and thought, gosh, that's a terrible mess. I need to clean it up. No, this gospel, it's always been plan A, promised beforehand in the scriptures. This is very old. And if you've got the sermon outline I've given you there, you'll notice I've titled this What is the gospel? Point one, but actually, that's a bit misleading. It should be Who is the gospel? Verse 2, I told you we'd work hard. I hope you're still with me. The gospel he promised beforehand through his, holy, uh, his, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, regarding his son. Now, whatever we say about this thing we call the gospel, it's about his son. And then we get some key information about this son. Verse 3, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. How do we know this? Well, through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we know he is the Christ, risen from the dead. Now, think back. Some of you would have been here for this. Last year, we did a a five-part series on the life and work of King David. I wonder if anyone remembers that. At the time, I tried to convince you that 2 Samuel chapter 7 needs to be in your top five Bible passages. I don't know if I succeeded, but here's why it matters. 2 Samuel 7, David, he's living in a palace. God, the temple, is a tent, all right? And David looks at this and he says, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm in a palace, God's living in a tent. i tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no thanks, David. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a kingdom. What's more, David, this kingdom, one of your descendants is going to rule forever and this will be a forever kingdom. And here we find Jesus, the Christ, descended from David. Think back to Christmas. Do you remember Joseph who is in the line of David? How about that? How about that? And yet still the problem remains. We might have solved the problem of his ancestry, but how can there be a forever kingdom when all the kings of Israel kept dying? Worse, by the time this letter gets written, there is no kingdom of Israel. Well, verse four is our answer. The son of God rejected by the world, vindicated by his father, how? Verse four, through his resurrection from the dead. Here is the forever king, the Christ of God, raised by the spirit of God to rule over forever the kingdom of God. Well, now we're getting somewhere. What is the gospel? It's the gospel of God promised beforehand in the scriptures concerning his son, descended from David, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means he is the one to whom we must submit. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is lovely information. Thank you for summarising it. Actually, the gospel is not information. It contains information. This is declaration. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's this declaration which demands a response. You look at verse 5, here is the appropriate response, the obedience that comes from faith. What does that mean? It means the appropriate response is to accept, believe, depend, rely on Jesus Christ as Lord, to submit to him, to believe in him, But we have to be careful about how we use that word believe. I'll tell you why. Because the devil will admit Jesus Christ is Lord. In that sense, he will believe Jesus Christ is Lord. However, the devil will never submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's the critical difference. Submitting to Jesus Christ as your Lord. He is Lord of my life. Yes, he's my saviour, but he's my Lord. I answer to him. That humility, that's the obedience of faith. And here again, this gets practical because when you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, you can end up doing some very strange things. One of our mission partners is the Church Missionary Society. And we support Martin and Julie Field. They uprooted their family from Australia and went to live in Argentina in a place called Cordoba. Why did they do that? Well, because secondary students in Cordoba need to hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we come to it next year, when we do another series in Roman, we'll get to chapter 10, and we'll find that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. And so how are secondary students in Cordoba going to hear about Jesus Christ as Lord unless someone goes? Now, everything I've said so far, if you look at verse 5, there's a little phrase, so easy to miss, but it's a shame if you do. Everything I've said about the gospel is for his name's sake. Everything about the gospel is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, think of it. If someone was to ask you tomorrow, what is the gospel? And you'd given them an answer that that's long. I'm sure they would have zoned out long ago. Maybe one or two of you have as well. But if you're going to answer the question, what is the gospel? You need to know what the gospel is first. If you're going to give someone a short answer, a digestible answer, what is this thing you call the gospel? You've got to know it first. And in part, that's what Paul is doing here. Laying out the key foundations that he's going to expand upon chapter after chapter. What is the gospel? It's of God, promised in the scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended of David, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now There's more to say, but that's not a bad summary. And I don't know if this is going to come as relief or not, but... We've finally reached our topic sentence for the evening. I told you we'd work hard. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. What does that mean? Well, to the Jews. And if you're not a Jew, everybody else is a Gentile. That's all it means. I'm a Gentile. You probably are too. Verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that right standing, is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith, which means we don't earn it, just as it's written, and then we get a quote, I think from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. What is the letter to the Romans about? It's about the power of God for salvation. The gift of a a right standing with him that we receive by faith in the finished work of God's Son. That's what this letter is about. But you'll have noticed, I'm sure, there's an odd comment that Paul makes, at least I think it's odd anyway. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why might he be ashamed of the gospel? Why might you be ashamed of the gospel? What if the one who brings the gospel the one who bears the message, in this case, Paul, what if we find the messenger embarrassing? I came across um, a free personal appraisal of the Apostle Paul written by, I was surprised by this, a guy called John Stott, very famous Bible commentator. This is what um, he said in describing Paul. Paul was an ugly little guy with beetle brows, bandy legs, a bald head, hooked nose, bad eyesight, and no great rhetorical gifts. And they were some of his better qualities. I don't know why he's picking on the bald guy. Seems a bit harassed to me. But you get the point. If the messenger is unimpressive, well, then maybe their message is unimpressive too. And I take it that's why many modern pastors spend so much money on tight jeans and expensive sneakers. Because they want to look impressive. Because if I look impressive, people will take my message seriously. Paul doesn't have any of that. And yet he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why else might we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, I'll tell you what, the the next few weeks are going to get pretty sporty, and we're going to see that the gospel, well, it's got this kind of offensive moral judgment about it. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, think about it, that means you need saving you can just imagine how a conversation might play out. How dare you call me a sinner? Who do you think you are? I'm living my truth, my way as the authentic version of myself. You should be affirming me. You should be celebrating me because how can there be anything wrong with me being me? This is the you-do-you you anthem of our generation. And next week, we'll see the result. And yet, despite these obstacles, verse 15, Paul's still eager to preach the gospel because he's preparing these Roman Christians to take the message of the gospel to the city of Rome. He's writing to Christians because he wants them to understand the gospel. And he wants these Romans to take the message of salvation to a hostile city. I wonder if that sounds familiar. And the only way these Roman Christians are going to embark on this mission is if they are convinced Jesus Christ is Lord and that everyone must be saved through him. Because only when they are unashamed of Jesus will they stand with Jesus under persecution. And so what about you? Can you say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? I wonder how you'll feel this time next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. Four weeks in a row, Paul is going to tell us what we're really like. He's going to take aim at pagan culture, And when he's finished with that, he'll take aim at respectable middle-class moralists. And when he's done with them, he'll take on self-righteous religious types. And just in case he missed anybody in the first half of chapter three, he'll reach the conclusion that nobody is right with God. In fact, everyone has turned away. What is he doing? And why are we spending so much time on it? Because I'll tell you, there are plenty of churches that will skate over this stuff. What is Paul doing? Paul is painting the ugly backdrop against which the good news of the gospel is being revealed. That there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, promised in the scriptures, descended from David, risen from the dead. But experience tells me that when you preach about this gospel in its fullness, when you take the slow road of preaching through the second half of Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3, people will take offence. And I'll agree with you, it's uncomfortable. People might take offence at me. Well, In a sense, that's an occupational hazard. But more important, people take offence at the gospel. I wonder how you'll feel. Experience also tells me, though, that there will be people who, by the power of God's spirit, will be convicted. They'll hear the truth about who they really are and they'll grasp hold of the salvation offered to them in the Lord Jesus. Either way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I hope you can say the same. Oh, I've done shameful things, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. The undeserved gift Of a right standing before God, paid for by the Son of God, that we might become the children of God. That's the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of that. And I hope you can say the same. Even when it gets uncomfortable. And so verse 7, to all in Rome and to all of you here tonight who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your patient love towards us. And as we've sung and as we've already prayed this evening, we do seek your forgiveness. Having turned against you and we praise you for the opportunity of being restored to right relationship with you. We pray this week that you'd go ahead of us, that you'd enable us to live with Jesus as our Lord, to put him in charge. So that our lives will bring honour to him. And at the same time, would you convince us of the power of the gospel? Its power to save? And when opportunity arises, would you give us words of grace to speak to others? That they too might receive this right standing with you while there's still time. And Father, go ahead of us in this series, that when it gets uncomfortable, would you minister to us by your Spirit? Draw us to genuine repentance so that we would wonder afresh, that you would reach out in love to the likes of us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.